Hi there, Daz Chandler here. You're tuned to The Hetero Pessimists. And in this episode, we ask the question, just how pessimistic should we be? Jane Ward is a professor of gender and sexuality studies at University of California, Riverside, where she teaches courses in feminist, queer and heterosexuality studies. She's written on a wide range of gender and sexuality topics, but it was her 2020 book, The Tragedy of Heterosexuality, that caught the attention of Dr. Felicity Joseph, the existentialist-minded philosopher on our team. Felicity believes that an answer to the problem of heteropessimism lies in the vexed nature of traditional theories of gender, which impose an ideal, if not reality, of asymmetrical humanity. And while acknowledging the depth of her abiding pessimism, Felicity also believes as a sincere feminist that it's essential to retain a space for optimism, no matter how small it may be. In this in-depth interview, Felicity speaks to Jane Ward for some answers and suggestions to the dilemmas of mainstream heteronormative culture, whilst finding out more about the nature of this tragic heterosexuality. So in your book, The Tragedy of Heterosexuality, you write about a kind of heterosexual misery, and I believe you've used the term heteromiserabilism. Could you say something about what you mean by that? Yes. So I was trying to capture the way that misery has been baked into heterosexual relationships. So it's not about some straight people being miserable because perhaps they are in particularly dysfunctional relationships. It's really about the way that heterosexual suffering is romanticized in straight culture so that making jokes about especially for women to joke together or to bond with one another about how pathetic their boyfriend or husband is at you know remembering her birthday or picking up after himself cleaning the house at taking care of the children you know basic things like that the complaint and the collective misery, you know, we know that misery loves company. So part of what I was trying to capture there is the way that heteronormativity is reaching out to bring more people into the fold of heterosexuality, not actually because the belief is that straight culture or heterosexuality is going to make everybody so happy, but because there's comfort in the shared misery. Yeah, so I, I called it hetero-miserabilism. So following on from that, how optimistic or indeed pessimistic are you about heterosexuality in our culture? I would say I'm 80% pessimistic, maybe 85% pessimistic and 15% optimistic. I mean, I, I can see a way forward for straight people, absolutely. I know that it's there, but whether straight people will be able to embrace it, to eroticize it, uh, I I just don't know. And I mean, mostly the obstacle is men, but of course it's also straight women who have really romanticized their own suffering too. So yeah, I'd say mostly pessimistic. Moving on to... uh the issue of the analogy between uh, racial categories and straightness. In your book, you write, 
As with the nebulous racial category of whiteness, one of the ways that we avoid looking critically at straightness is to keep it indefinable, to imagine that it is so vast and irreducible to any one way of being. Would you mind elaborating a little more on this analogy between whiteness and straightness? So what we know about whiteness is that as whiteness was being invented as a category, of course it was intended to capture many different types of people during the industrial period and assimilate fair-skinned immigrants in a way that would reinforce racial hierarchies. And part of the way that that was done was to, to understand white people as the human default, as the normative category. And it wasn't just white people, but white men in particular who had normative bodies, normative sexuality, normative psychologies, or not just normative, but ideal. So it became the ideal to which the rest of us were to aspire. And, you know, when something is the default in that way, it becomes really hard to even see it. It feels so normalized, so natural, so standardized that it's hard to describe it. And so that's why so many white people will talk about, you know, will say things like, well, I, I don't really even, does whiteness even have a culture? There is no such a thing as white culture or... Um, I don't think of myself as white or I'm just part of the human race. Well, similarly, straightness is so deeply naturalized or became such in the modern period that it became the sexual and romantic default. The expectation was that people were heterosexual, which is pretty remarkable when you actually look at the history of sexuality, people have engaged in homosexual and all sorts of gender creative and sexually creative practices for centuries. But as heteronormativity concretized, straightness became the default. And it meant that it became very difficult to name it. I mean, we named it as a medical category, heterosexual. That means that you're a person who is attracted to and has sex with people of the opposite sex. But beyond that, like being able to name, well, you know, how do straight people interact with one another? What is straight culture? What do straight people eat? How do straight people move? How do straight people talk? What do they watch on TV? How, what do they wear? You know, this is all, some of those questions people scoff at my even raising them because Again, you know, straightness is imagined to be in an undefinable category, you know, something that's, that's just part of being a human person. But you can only hold on to that viewpoint when you are straight. When you're queer, it's very easy to rattle off everything about straight people, how they talk, how they move, what they consume. So... So that was one of my, my aims in the book, is to actually describe straight culture. I'm wondering then, in order to correct the injustices that we see are prevalent in straight culture, how important do you feel it is for those identifying as heterosexual 
to own or take responsibility for their straightness and straight culture? Oh, I think it's essential. And yeah, it's one of the major conclusions that I come to in the book and something that I really urge straight readers, especially straight women to do. I mean, I think part of what's animating heteronormativity, a big part of what animates it is the presumption that straightness is a biological category. It's a default category. It's essential to the reproduction of the human species. And so therefore, people are sort of resigned to it. Like, well, sure, straightness comes with a lot of baggage and a lot of challenges, but what can we do? And so people kind of throw their hands up. And I would like to see straight people have a more agentic relationship to their heterosexuality rather than it being something that happens to them. I would love to see straight people, especially straight women, own what it is about straightness they're drawn to. That could be, you know, the details of men's bodies. It could be elements of straight culture. But Nobody buys anymore the idea that you just can't, you know, you couldn't possibly be queer. We know people can be queer. I I hear this from straight women all the time. Oh, I wish I could just be a lesbian in my life. It'd be so much easier. And I just want to be like, well, just do it. It's not that hard, you know, just so we know that queerness is a livable option now for people. And yet straight people don't choose it. So I think it would be really healthy for straight people to then become more articulate about what it is about heterosexuality that really works for them. And, you know, men are a little further along in this regard because straight men are given a lot of space to describe heteroeroticism, you know, so they can just be like, well, I just love women's bodies and so forth. But what's interesting about straight women is that a lot of research on straight women indicates that straight women don't actually find men's naked bodies very appealing or they claim they don't. There's some kind of tension or contradiction there where straight women on the one hand say, I'm definitely heterosexual and on the other hand seem to be kind of sexually disinterested and and sometimes even put off by men's sexuality, men's desire of them. So I think that's where that work needs to be done. Yes, I feel like there's so much more research to be done in that area of uh, straight women's straight sexuality. Your book focuses strongly on misogyny as being the real problem with heterosexuality. And I was particularly struck by your summary of lesbian feminist observations that, quote, straight men desired women's services, emotional, sexual, reproductive, domestic, rather than actual women, unquote. If this is the case, what do you think men could learn from lesbian feminists in terms of seeking to know and love actual women? Yes, so such a great question. And this is kind of the other major conclusion that I come to, which is that what we need for men, you know, what we need for women, we already talked about is we need women to, to agentically claim after some soul searching, what it is that draws them to heterosexuality. And what we need for men is something I call deep heterosexuality, which is for straight men 
who claim to love women so much, to be so into women, to be so deeply heterosexual, what I'm asking of straight men is that they learn to like women so much that they actually like them, that they crave not just one individual woman who they hope will sleep with them or who is their partner and who is so great to them, but that they crave women in general. They want women's leadership. They want to listen to what women have to say. They enjoy the company of women. They enjoy listening to women. They care about what happens to girls and women. Because in lesbian feminist culture, the desire to have sex with women is really inseparable from an investment in women's general well-being you know it's it's really not just about you know i i just am attracted to that one woman it's really so interconnected with caring about women as a whole and caring about you know women's freedom women's agency and so because i am queer and i have experienced that and you know i want to be really clear this isn't like saying that you can't lust for people or that your desire for women has to be you know that you can't like want to just fuck around or whatever all of that you know all of that raunchiness is possible I mean even in my like most casual sex (laughs) still feminism ran through those encounters because for me Getting off on women is always connected with getting off on feminism. You know, even if I'm only going to have sex with that person that night and never see them again, I still want that to be feminist sex. You know, I still want that to be subjectifying and humanizing. And so I know this is possible is what I'm getting at. And so I, I believe it's also possible for straight men. But... It's really the opposite of heteromasculinity or straight male culture, which actually has convinced many straight men that to be invested in girls' and women's lives, to know about, to be intimate with, to like the things that girls and women like, is actually feminizing. And so many straight men are deeply phobic about that, you know, or dismissive, like, oh, it's a chick film or, you know, why would I read a book with, with women characters or what, you know, there's just so much disdain actually for things that are about women, which is tremendously ironic for a group of people who have defined their sexual orientation as being about an attraction to women. Thanks, Jane. You really bring out the contradiction there. And that was such a beautiful description of what it is to love women as opposed to just liking or loving one woman. Misogyny has been, I think, more observed as COVID has risen. And your book came out in 2020 during the rise of COVID. And I actually remember I was um, breastfeeding my little girl and, and reading your book on Kindle because then I don't have to turn the pages. So it was very convenient. In this time, it seemed the heterosexual family has come under increasing strain and scrutiny along gendered lines. I wonder, what do you think the effect of pandemic conditions might be on the heteronormative family long-term, uh, negative or positive? Yeah, I mean, it, it, what it seemed to me from following the New York Times coverage of this issue is that it exposed something that, or, or just sort of brought to the surface 
something that um, feminist sociologists have known for a long time. I'm thinking about a sociologist named Kathleen Gerson, who did a study in which she, she interviewed straight couples, men and women, to, to ask them about their like ideal division of labor. And what she found is that many more men than ever before reported that they wanted things to be equal. They wanted a family relation, you know, a marriage, a family in which their partners got to work, you know, went to work, had fulfilling careers. They wanted to share childcare evenly, the household labor evenly. But then Kathleen Gerson asked, well, what if something happened and, you know, s- structurally, you needed to prioritize one person's career over another. This is where we saw there being a tremendous gap that women said, well, we would really have to negotiate that. We'd have to figure that out. I, may- maybe we'd make the decision based on who made more money and I make more money, so maybe it would be me. But this is where the men revealed that they had a sense of entitlement to a career and that if push came to shove, they were gonna assert that sense of entitlement because they saw it as pretty central to their masculinity. And so what Kathleen Gerson then argued was that when we have a lot of structural supports in place that make things fairly easeful for gender equality, then mostly we're making progress. But if we hit a bump in the road, what happens is that men default to a very traditional gender division of labor. And this is a long way of saying basically that, you know, COVID was very much one of those bumps in the road. Suddenly, co-parents had to start making decisions about who was going to stay home with the kids who were no longer in school. And regardless of what women thought about that, what we know was that men, many men were like, uh, I'm not doing that, or sure, I'll do that. And they made it 48 hours before they, you know, had a breakdown and basically told their partner, you know, I'm going back to work. I mean, countless stories of this where women who had very demanding careers basically had to default back into being a stay at home parent because their husband was too pathetic to actually do it himself. So I think. COVID revealed that, but it wasn't really specific to COVID, if I'm making sense here. I think we have a lot of research to indicate that any kind of strain and men are very reluctant to give up the privileges of their autonomy. It's also in your book that you argue that despite the exceptions to mainstream heterosexuality, for instance, hetero men raised by lesbians, feminist men, equable marriages, etc., these have not actually made much of a dent on straight culture itself. And you were giving some examples of that. People seem to be, or men seem to be committed to equality until they're not. Why do you think this is? Well, in so many ways, misogyny is just still alive and well. I think, you know, we make a couple of steps forward and then there's tremendous backlash. So, I mean, I was writing this book as Donald Trump was campaigning and then was elected. 
into the executive office of the United States. And this is a man who is very, you know, is a very open misogynist. So I think there's actually a sense among many American men anyway, that misogyny is sort of their birthright. It's a male entitlement. It's a harmless, harmless form of discrimination that I think many men believe that women enjoy. And, you know, the way Donald Trump phrased this was like, it's just locker room talk. It's sort of the culture of masculinity. It's what men do together, but it doesn't mean that we're not going to like come home to our wife at the end of the day. So yeah, I mean, the, the kinds of interventions that are happening, they're just far too few. So I think we're just barely scratching the surface. Now, is that a surprise? No, it's not because I also sort of lay out the history of straight culture in the book. I mean, in the same way that I think we're really grappling with the fact that, you know, four centuries of white supremacy, you just can't undo with like a couple of decades of social justice legislation or with people wanting it to be different. There's, you know, tremendous healing that has to be done and, um, you know, major, major cultural transformation around white, white supremacy that needs to happen with millions of white people sort of agreeing that they want to end their support for white supremacy. That's what we need. And similarly, the vast majority of human history has unfolded under patriarchy. So we're talking about centuries of profound amounts of male violence against women that was just sort of part of the human experience. So we can't expect that that's just going to go away so easily. We need a really very different way of thinking about who we are as people. And we need, we need a much larger percentage of the human population to see that our collective liberation as humans rests on men letting go of, of their privilege, of patriarchal power, of their investments in misogyny. So when it comes to the battle for ethical heterosexuality, one that's truly egalitarian and respectful, does it belong to or is the, the, the responsibility of the straights alone? Or is there potential for solidarity between people of all sexual orientations? Oh, I really hope there's solidarity. I mean, that's, that was one of my aims with this book was to say, you know, I have many straight women in my life, straight women and men. I love them. I care for them. It looks really miserable what's happening to you. I want to help. Please, I am your ally. I, I can be your ally, your accomplice. I mean, you know, we, I think, mistakenly think of the ally relationship as being about straight people being good comrades to queer people whose lives, you know, must be so difficult. But I actually think most queer women, anyway, think about it in the reverse, which is that they're just so grateful to not be straight and they look at the experiences that straight women in their lives are having and they feel a lot of sympathy 
and feminist solidarity. And so it's been really difficult to even articulate that or to share that with straight people because the narrative about how tragic it is to be gay has been so strong for so long, but it's kind of a false narrative. And this isn't to say that there's not so much homophobic suffering and anti-gay violence and all of that, all of that is true. But the problem there is homophobia. The problem isn't queerness. Most queer people really love the queerness of their lives and experience a lot of queer joy in being queer. And a big part of that queer joy actually has to do with the way that being queer is political. It's, it's a kind of a stance of resistance to gender hierarchies. And that's incredibly freeing to have that and to have that be in your relationship. So, and to have that shape how you parent with another person, for instance. And, you know, most straight people don't have any of that framework there. So, yes, I, I very much hope for queer people to be comrades to straight people. And in your work, uh, you argue that heterosexuals actively fighting for cultural change should seek a deepening of heterosexuality, which you've talked about before, rather than a queering of it. I'm just wondering, do you think there is any potential for queer culture to have a liberatory effect on straight culture? I do, but, you know, I think that has been happening in certain kinds of ways, and I don't know whether the ways that it's currently happened have actually intervened in heteropatriarchy very much. So many, many straight people we know now love queer culture, queer sort of art scenes, music scenes. You know, they love to go to queer pride parades. They sometimes love to go to queer bars. Straight, straight women in particular, this has been very controversial, will, you know, love to go to gay bars and kind of take over, maybe have their bachelorette party because of the feeling of safety they might experience there. So there's been a lot of straight people learning from queer people things about embodiment, even about better sex. You know, a lot of the uh, more feminist, feminist sex toy stores were, most of them really were founded by dykes who now spend a lot of their day teaching straight people how to have better sex, teaching straight men how to give women orgasms, this kind of thing. But for the most part, these have been like little kind of either subcultural practices that straight people have taken from queer life or they've been technical sexual skills. But the political element, the way that queer people understand our sexuality, our queerness, not as a sexual orientation, but as a political stance against gender and sexual normativity and hierarchy, I think that part hasn't really infiltrated the straight world yet. And so I think we need to work more there. Professor of Gender and Sexuality Studies at University of California, Riverside, Jane Ward, ending that conversation with the University of New England's Felicity Joseph. 
If you're keen to explore the concept of heteropessimism further, visit our website www.theheteropessimists.com. Volume 1 of this project has been produced with the assistance of the Freilich Foundation on sovereign Anawan country. We acknowledge that sovereignty over the land and waters was never ceded and that custodianship is shared with the Dunguti, Gabanir and Gamalaroi peoples. Thanks again for joining us. Until next time, wishing you vibrant, respectful and desiring relationships. <laughs>